my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time an in-depth interview with Alistair Morgan, long-time seeker of justice on behalf of his brother Daniel Morgan, murdered way back in 1987. It's a story that involves police corruption, the Murdoch media empire and senior politicians. Home Secretary Priti Patel recently delayed a long-awaited independent report into the circumstances surrounding Daniel's death and the failure to bring his killer to justice, heaping yet more stress upon a grieving family. It's been appalling at times. I've been close to breakdown, depression, constant worry all the time, anger and frustration, all of these emotions were bubbling up inside me for years. An exclusive long-form interview with Alistair Morgan to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times isn't told what to say by any media mogul or corporate interest. We can tell it like it is because we're funded by subscribers to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Subscriptions fund this podcast, our brilliant newsbreaking website and support Byline TV. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. This is the pub here, the Golden Lion, where Daniel came for a drink with his partner, Jonathan Reese on the night he was killed. I couldn't see when I came on the night... I kind of knew instinctively that it was going to be somewhere in this dark place in the car park. So it was was the perfect secluded spot? Yeah. There was no crime scene cordon. There was nothing. And there was a big patch of blood on the tarmac, just about there, I would say. Alistair Morgan, back in the summer of 2011, showed me around the pub car park in South London, where his brother Daniel had been brutally murdered with an axe to the head nearly a quarter of a century earlier in 1987. That was taken from an episode of the Radio 4 documentary series The Report, which is still available on BBC Sounds. Others have since taken up the story, including Byline Times co-founder Peter Jukes, whose untold podcast series about it has had more than 9 million downloads. There was also a very good Channel 4 series, Murder in the Car Park. These are good places to start if you want to understand all the interwoven layers and intricate plot twists of a real-life line of duty. For our purposes, though, let's stick to the potted history. Here's Peter Jukes from a recent bonus edition of this podcast, explaining why Daniel, who had founded the private detective agency Southern Investigations, was a marked man. A friend of Daniel's came forward and wrote a book, David Bray, and we already had about five or six witnesses saying he had a story of police corruption. That's from the sort of investigations of the time, and he absolutely confirmed this. Daniel was terrified for his life. He was working with another police officer who also died that summer in somewhat suspicious suicide with a gun by his side and no fingerprints on it called Alan Holmes. So we're sure, yeah, that was the reason he was scared of his life. A lot of witnesses saying at the time on or off the record, he was killed because he was going to blow the cover on uh, potentially, and that's what the story floating around, a hundred million pound cocaine importation involving senior Met officers and customs officials. So was Daniel killed because he was about to sell a huge story to the papers about bent coppers? 
It seems very possible, but we don't know for sure. What we can be certain about is that the investigation had suffered from the start from the taint of corruption, because that was the phrase later used by John Yates, then an assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Shortly after the murder, Sid Fillery, an officer who had interviewed Alistair Morgan about the case, retired from the force and took Daniel's old job at Southern Investigations, alongside Daniel's business partner, Jonathan Rees. In the years that followed, Southern Investigations provided tabloid editors with numerous front-page scoops, many obtained by dubious or even illegal means. Their sources included police officers. This attracted the attention of CIB3, the Met's anti-corruption squad. One of the first things they did investigating police corruption, the Met was put a bug in Southern Investigations because it was at the centre of a lot of police corruption. That's irrefutable. And eventually there were arrests made because they were fitting up with police officers, people in custody cases with cocaine to get custody of the child, all kinds of things. And a report was done that found... In the five months they had this bug in the middle of the offices in Thornton Heath, at least 30 media crimes. Because basically, as well as dealing with corrupt police and a lot of corrupt police in southeast London at that time, they would deal extensively with the media. They would sort of parlay stories backwards and forwards. They'd also use sort of advanced techniques of computer hacking. They were the first to use computer hacking, early phone tapping. And they trained up. They worked nearly, not exclusively, they worked with the Mirror Group, but mainly with News of the World. And they were involved in some of the biggest scandals of the 90s. For example, you may remember, and your listeners may remember, the culture minister in 1992, I think it was, David Miller, saying the press were drinking at the last chance loon because of some egregious infraction the tabloid press had done again. Lo and behold, it is sudden investigations, which bugs up an apartment where he's having an affair with an actress. And David Miller goes. Likewise, you may remember in the 92 election that Paddy Ashdown was a potential contender or at least shaving enough votes for Neil Kinnock to win. Southern Investigations was involved in brokering this letter from a solicitor's office that had been broken into that he'd been having an affair, leading to this famous front page Paddy Pantsdown. They continued like this, working with Maza Mahmood, the famous fake shake and all kinds of stings throughout the 90s. And the most extraordinary thing when they were sent to prison and the lead ringleader was sort of sent to prison for five years of fitting up this woman with cocaine. When he comes out, the first person to employ him is the then editor of News the World, Andy Coulson. The ringleader Peter Jukes refers to there was Daniel Morgan's former partner in Southern Investigations, Jonathan Rees, whose sentence for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice was later increased to seven years. But no one has ever been convicted of involvement in Daniel's murder. That's despite five criminal investigations and a trial which collapsed in 2011. So what are we left with then? Well, there were proven links between a detective agency that pioneered phone hacking and traded information from bent police officers and Rupert Murdoch's News of the World. And not just any detective agency either, but the one that Daniel Morgan worked for until he was murdered, when he was apparently on the brink of blowing open a big story about corruption in the Met. In this context, the botched investigations and the failure to put anyone behind bars for the killing couldn't help but take on a sinister aspect. In an attempt to cut through the thicket of rumour and innuendo, 
Theresa May, then Home Secretary, commissioned an independent panel in 2013 to examine the circumstances surrounding Daniel's death. Their report was initially due within two years, but took eight, and just as it was about to be published, Home Secretary Priti Patel made an unprecedented intervention and delayed it, citing concern for national security and human rights. Really? There are suspicions that the report could be embarrassing for both the Met and media magnate Rupert Murdoch, whose wedding to Jerry Hall Patel attended as a guest. Alistair Morgan has been talking me through the story, starting with the family's decision to accept an independent panel rather than the full judicial review they had been calling for. I discussed this at length with my solicitor. He said that challenging the Home Secretary would be probably pointless. Well, he'd been on the Hillsborough panel, so he knew the process well. And we both agreed at that time that this was the best option we had at that time. A judicial inquiry we would have preferred, but, anyway, you know, it wasn't on the table, really. So we thought, well, we, we, were, we were tired and we thought, well, this will do. At that time, of course, we had no idea that it would take eight years. But anyway, we accepted that offer and here we are now. Yes, I think the expectation was that the independent panel might take two years instead it took eight why was that largely it was because of delays by the police that was one thing after about a year the panel chairman sir stanley burnton had to leave and then we had to get a new chair and that took about nine months because we had to agree this with the home office we finally uh, agreed that Nulo Loan should chair the panel. By this time, the Met hadn't even released any documents. This was a whole year into the process, and they hadn't even released a single document. And this went on, I think it must have been about two years after the announcement of the panel, before we got a single document from the Met. So as far as I'm concerned, the delay and the time it's taken to do this has been very largely the fault of the Metropolitan Police. And have they provided every document that was requested of them? Uh, that I don't know, Adrian. I know that the panel has, on a number of occasions when we've met them, expressed dissatisfaction the way they've been proceeding, the slowness of the process, but they haven't mentioned any specific document that they haven't received. But I guess this is one of the difficulties of an independent panel rather than a judicial inquiry. It doesn't have the power to subpoena evidence. If bodies like the police decide not to share evidence with you, there's nothing that the independent panel can do to force them. Of course, that's the situation in theory. That is one of the disadvantages. Looking back, we would certainly have preferred a judicial inquiry because I do know that certain people declined to appear before the panel. We knew this before we started, but we also felt we had very little choice and 25 years had gone by. My mother was getting very, very old. There we are, you know, here we are now. And part of the sell, as it were, of the independent panel was that it would be quicker than a public inquiry, although sadly, of course, that hasn't proved to be the case. No, no. And Raju, my solicitor, had a very good experience, as far as I know, on the Hillsborough panel. 
we didn't grab it with both hands. We both knew that there were pros and cons to this choice. But as I said before, we accepted it and here we are now. And at this point, you haven't seen the panel's final report? No, I haven't seen it at all. Have you been satisfied as you've gone through your meetings with the panel that they have been independent and that they have been indefatigable in the search of the truth of the circumstances surrounding your brother's death? I would say so. And I think there have been one or two little mistakes they made, but given the reluctance to cooperate, I mean, they said we will cooperate fully with it, but even as they said it, I remember thinking, oh, no, you won't, because I've had 25 years of experience with these people and I knew they wouldn't. You mentioned your mother, and I understand, sadly, that she has passed away in the time that we've been waiting for the panel to report. Yes, my mother died late in 2017 without ever having seen the report. I mean, that, of course, added to the to the stress and unhappiness that we've been experiencing since the very beginning of this saga. How was she affected by Daniel's murder? Oh, she was devastated. As we discovered the way the police had been investigating it, over many years we experienced the actions of the police as just one provocation after another, and we decided both of us were not inclined to back down, and so it went on and on and on, and it ruined, really ruined the last... 30 years of her life. It's an interesting word that you use there, the the provocations of the police. What do you mean by that? Well, I can remember very, very early on suspecting uh, corruption in the first investigation. And by the time the inquest happened and being present at the inquest, I, I became certain. I had no doubt whatsoever that there was corruption in the investigation. And then... Uh, an outside inquiry was appointed with Hampshire police doing the investigation. The way they conducted it, certain, for example, they didn't even take a statement from me and I was the alleged complainant and I'd seen corruption going on. So this was the police force that was investigating your allegations of corruption in the original investigation, didn't even take a statement from you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I remember meeting them before they opened their investigation and we had a long meeting with them, probably about two or three hours even. At the end of this meeting, I said, because I've made some serious allegations in this meeting, and I said, do you want to take a statement from me? And I expected them to say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow or come round to your place and whatever it is and take a statement. But they said, not at this stage. And I thought, well, they're going to do it in a couple of weeks or something like that. But it never happened. Anyway, eventually, when they came to the conclusion, when we heard back from the police complaints authority who was supervising the investigation, they gave the Met a completely clean bill of health. And that, to me, was a provocation. I knew, I I was absolutely certain that corruption had gone on in the first investigation. And they came along and with what I call a complete whitewash, I regarded that, or my mother and I regarded that as a provocation. And then we started campaigning and about, gone. it must have been about 10 years later, they opened an investigation behind our backs, which we only found out about about a year or so into the investigation. And I regarded that as another 
provocation. So the police um, were investigating your brother's death, but you as family members, you as Daniel's brother, your mother, were not aware of that investigation. When we found out about it, they told us that uh, it was an investigation into Daniel's murder. And prior to this investigation, they had told my MP, Chris Smith, that they were taking steps to resolve the case or to solve the case. And after that, I heard absolutely nothing. So I spent a year wondering what they were up to. And then the investigation happened, after which my brother's partner, who was one of the suspects in the murder, was convicted of perverting the course of justice. And I think I think their attitude was, well, we've got one of the suspects for something. Please go away now. Again, we regarded that as a provocation, the way they'd conducted that investigation. And they said then that they were going to open a new investigation. After that third one, they said they were going to open a new investigation. And my attitude then was, oh, no, you're not. You're going to first of all show us what you've been up to beforehand, because I had no confidence in them whatsoever. And I said, well, as an act of good faith, will you show us the Hampshire report, just as a trust-building exercise? This was the report from the Hampshire Constabulary into the original investigation. Now, my thinking there was that if I could get that in my hands and somehow prove that it was a cover-up on paper in black and white, that this would stimulate them into doing a proper investigation. But they started the fourth investigation while we were still litigating. It took us two years to get the Hampshire report, by which time I think they'd already finished or well in progress with the fourth investigation and so it was like dealing with a two-headed monster on the one hand we were desperately trying to trust the fourth investigation while they were still hiding from us what they'd been up to in the past so it was incredibly stressful incredibly stressful and provocative I thought well anyway eventually after slightly more than two years. The judge in the High Court ruled that we could see the report. He gave the Met a week to hand it over to us. They couldn't be bothered to comply with the order, and we got it about 10 days or 12 days after. We got it late. You know, these provocations just went on and on and on. And my mother, of course, lived through all of this with us. And in fact, well after the collapse of of the prosecution in 2011. So it was a very, very unhappy experience for her, for, for all of us, but particularly for my mother, because she was well into her 80s and uh, in declining health. And as you say, your brother's former business partner, Jonathan Reese, was convicted of framing an innocent person but was cleared of any connection with Daniel's murder as were a number of other associates as well. Alistair this may be a very difficult question for you to answer but I know you're seeped in the story of your brother's death. Why do you think Daniel was murdered? In the days before he died he was clearly very worried about police corruption because on the Thursday before his death he came home in the evening and 
His neighbour was, I think, outside when he arrived in his car, an old lady who lived next door. And he said to her, Doris, you'll never guess what I found out today. And unfortunately, he didn't tell her. But he then said, all police are bastards. So he was very angry with what he clearly found out that day. And then on the Sunday, the following Sunday, he was killed on the Tuesday. And so two days before his murder, he went to a meeting of the Austin Healy Club, of which he was a member, because he'd rebuilt an old Austin Healy. And he told two people there that he was worried about police corruption, that he was worried about his partner and a police officer called Sid Fillery. So clearly, in the days before his murder, he was very worried about police corruption and uh, annoyed about it. On the Tuesday, boom, he was dead. So it was a very, very disturbing case from the outset. And Southern Investigations, which was the private investigations agency that Daniel founded, was the supplier of a string of stories, some of them illegally obtained for tabloid newspapers. And at certain points, News of the World journalists were more aware of investigations into Daniel's death than the family were. So there's this uncomfortable suggestion of links between police corruption, newspapers and investigations into Daniel's death. It wasn't until 2008 that we actually did, learned of the interference in one of the investigations, in the fourth investigation, by one of the journalists from the News of the World. That hadn't entered into our consciousness until that time. And then, of course, the hacking story began to emerge slowly, bit by bit, and then we began to realise the extent of the corruption in the media that was going on and the links with sudden investigations and that just made the thing even more complicated and even more provocative as far as we were concerned. What happened in that fourth investigation? Well they did some bugging in various places. The police yeah. Yeah the police and I believe that this was a, a genuine attempt by David Cook the the senior investigating officer on this case, to solve the case. But obviously the interference by the news of the world, like they were following him, taking his children to school. He didn't know who these people were. They were photographing his wife. He told me at one point that his children had even seen a man with a balaclava in the back garden. Now, Jackie Hames, who was David Cook's wife at the time, had only recently experienced the murder of her colleague, Jill Dando. This was on the Crime Watch programme. And so she was naturally terrified by these events. And I'm sure that this, of course, was a handicap to the investigation, although I can't prove it. But anyway, at the end, after a year, police sent a file to CPS. And then months and months later, delays are par for the course in this case. The CPS came to the conclusion that in 2004 or 2003, I think, that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. So there we were after four investigations, still with no resolution. And we then applied for a judicial inquiry at that point. But just so, just to take you back to that point. So 
journalists or photographers working for the news of the world were photographing the police officer who was investigating your brother's murder. I, I mean, what, what sense can we make of that? I think they were making some kind of attempt to discredit him or, or intimidate him. And certainly uh, it had that effect on his wife. And of course, with that kind of stress on a family, it must have been extremely difficult for him. And I know he did find it extremely difficult. But we, we didn't know about this at that time. We didn't learn this until about four years later. And what about the stress on you, Alistair, over these many, many years of fighting to get justice for your brother? I, I suppose in some way you kind of get used to it in a way. Uh, but nevertheless, it's been appalling. At times I've been close to breakdown depression, constant worry all the time, anger and frustration, all of these emotions were bubbling up inside me for years, you know, all, all the time. And I, the only way I could get any relief from this was to go abroad. I found that if I could get away for a couple of weeks out of Britain, then I could see it from a different perspective. You know, I didn't have it in my face all the time there. And that was, if you like, my only relief from it. What sense can you make of the decision by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, to delay publication of an independent report? As I understand it, that is an unprecedented move for a, a report of this kind. It is, exactly. What I do know is that when she was talking in the early stages, just immediately after we found out about this delay, when she was talking about redaction and reviewing it for national security reasons and for Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to life, etc., we knew a, that she did not have these obligations in law because those were under the Inquiries Act and this panel was not subject to the Inquiries Act. Alistair, how did you feel then when you heard that this had been delayed by Priti Patel? Initially bewildered, annoyed, angry, frustrated, all of the, <laughs> the same feelings that I'd been experiencing for 30-odd years. And after a while, I thought, you kind, of, you kind of get used to it, Adrian. You think, well, this has been the way since the very beginning. There's been delays, various messes of different descriptions all throughout the whole history of the case. And I just thought, well, this is the way it is with this case. And I knew that the panel were doing their utmost to get the report published, whilst at the same time ensuring its integrity. They're concerned about redaction, which Priti Patel now denies that she ever said, but she did. I personally do not trust the Home Secretary, but we're having to leave it now in the hands of the panel. They're now in discussions with the Home Secretary a, to get the report published, and B, to ensure the integrity of the report when it is published. 
I don't expect this inquiry to give me the answers to everything. I'm quite sure that there will be black and grey areas in the report where they, for example, where they couldn't make any further headway because of the limitation in their powers or because it was simply impossible to establish the truth about one thing or another because of contradictory evidence or whatever it might be. But I am hoping that it will uh, take us a step forward into unravelling this huge mess, which is the only way it can be described. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see. Alistair Morgan there. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. We're funded by subscriptions to the monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Subscribers also support Byline TV and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. So please subscribe if you can. Thanks very much indeed for listening. See you next time.